Today we're going to speak with Jeremy Craker about his new book coming out called Motorcycle Messengers. It's a collaborative effort between Jeremy and other authors like Sam Manicom and Neil Peart. And you're going to find out a way you can get that book in your hands long before it hits the shelf. Stick around for that. We also have Robert Wicks, who is a prolific author and passionate adventure motorcyclist. He's had extensive riding experience in Africa and Iceland, and that's a great one coming up. And we have Jeremy LeBreton and Eric Seymour from Alt-Rider to talk about crash bars and how they're manufactured, particularly mounting points and why mounting points may be the most important thing you look at when considering a set of bars. As well, some questions that you need to ask no matter what brand you're looking at of crash bar for your bike. Stay with us. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio from the road. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Altrider, manufacturing 100% American-made accessories and gear for your adventure touring motorcycle. You can find out more by visiting Altrider at altrider.com. Well, today we're going to kick things off by talking with Jeremy Craker about his new book, Motorcycle Messengers. But before we do, I want to wish my daughter a happy birthday. She's celebrating her 25th birthday today, and you only do that once. Happy birthday, Tash. Well, if you don't know the name Jeremy Craker, you're missing out because he's already got two great books out there about motorcycling, one called Motorcycle Therapy, the other Through Dust and Darkness. Great books. If you don't have them already, you got to get them. He's got another one coming out, and you're listening at a perfect time because you may be able to get this one ahead of everyone else. And here's Jeremy from his home in Canmore, Alberta. Jeremy, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me, Jim. So, Jeremy, this new book coming out, give us a little rundown on it. Yeah, it's actually called Motorcycle Messengers, uh, and its subtitle is Tales from the Road by Writers Who Ride. So I've spent the last two years collecting stories from various uh, motorcycle travel authors, uh, some of whom are fairly well-known uh, in the genre, like uh, Ted Simon wrote the foreword, uh, Lois Price, uh, Sam Manicum, and then uh, Neil Peart. He's also got a story in there. He's the drummer for Rush. And then a few other people that you probably haven't heard of are in this uh, anthology as well. So the idea was to collect some stories and maybe raise the profile of a few writers and maybe help a reader find their new favorite author. Wow, I mean, you can tell right by the by the get-go here, by the lineup of people you have in this book, it's it's clearly going to be a success right right out of the right off the press, so to speak. I hope so, yeah. Um, and there again, it's. Uh, we're, I guess in one sense, uh, the lot of us are competitors uh, in a certain way because a lot of us have books out and uh, people only have a, a finite budget for uh, for reading and books and things. But really, we are like uh, members of the motorcycle community and very supportive of one another. So 
um, that was kind of the idea behind behind the concept was that we could help each other out with a little bit of cross promotion here. Well, was this an idea that you came up with, or, or was it something that somebody else um, suggested to you? Well, I came up with the idea independently, um, but after I started talking to people about it, it turns out that um, I'm not the first one to think of it. <laughs> uh, there have been other people discussing the possibility of doing an anthology um, for months ahead of me. I was just unaware of it, and um, I guess I was just one of the first people to... Um, put the feelers out and see if we could actually make it work. So you must have wrote something to begin with for, for this book. I mean, you sort of started out with this book. Did you start out writing this and then decide afterwards that you wanted to include other people? No, no. It, the, the, the idea was always to involve um, some of my friends who are in the community. And um, like I say, I'm really hoping that readers will discover someone new. Like, uh, I keep I keep using the name Sam Manicum because he comes to mind because he's quite popular in the United Kingdom, but here in Canada and in the States, um, many people haven't really heard of him. And um, Mark Richardson, he's in this book as well, and he wrote an excellent book uh, that's quite popular, um, and people have heard of it in the States and in Canada, but maybe not so much in the UK. So I'm just trying to really, I guess, broaden the... Um, the profile of uh, various travel authors. So yeah, it was it was never supposed to be it was never supposed to be just my book. I mean, I've only got uh, a handful of stories in here myself, and one of them is original. And um, you know, some of these authors contributed new material, and some of them submitted uh, excerpts from previously published books. Jeremy, when you're putting this together and you're approaching everyone, I sort of can't help but think, you know, you've got some big names in there. Um, was mm-hmm. it was it difficult to get them on board? Most people were really enthusiastic about the project right off the bat. Um, and I should mention that uh, after this thing was finalized, <laughs> I suddenly became aware that I missed some very key people. Um, so there's definitely room for a follow-up on this if this project is successful. So there will possibly be Motorcycle Messengers Volume 2. Um, I know Ellen Carl, he's been, he wrote the book Forks. Uh, he has been extremely supportive uh, on Twitter and social media and things, but I neglected to approach him in time. <laughs> um, and there's a few other people as well that that I, you know, through my fault or or maybe they missed the boat as well. Um, but yeah, almost everyone that I approached was enthusiastic and uh, keen to submit a story. Clearly, it's a, about motorcycles. But what can the reader expect uh, from all these stories? Is there a common theme? Yeah, well, that was the fun part about pulling this together was uh, I never began with a theme in mind. In fact, some of the writers were asking me, well, what kind of theme do you want? And I said, no theme. Uh, Let's just focus on motorcycle travel. And as the stories came in, um, a theme kind of grew organically and uh, a few themes, actually. Um, One of them that comes to mind is typically the risk of motorcycle travel and adventure is worth the reward. Um, the other one is the more vulnerable you make yourself as a traveler, generally speaking, uh, the more positive experience you have. So put yourself into kind of some uncomfortable situations, meet new people, and you'll find out that generally, uh, the world is populated with, with kind-hearted folks who will help you, uh, rather than, you know, seek to hurt you. And the book is not out yet. Um, it's sort of, uh, I, actually, I think the book is finished, isn't it? It's ready to go, and you're, you're starting to do some fundraising for it? Yeah, that's right. The book is done. Um, it's at the layout department right now. 
and it's getting ready to go to press at the end of this month. So in, in June, I should have it shipped to the printers, and I'll have copies within six weeks of that. So the book is pretty well finished. I've got a great cover, photography by Alphonse, or Fonzi, um, Moto Insider, some people know him. And officially, the release date is the spring of 2016. So it's a long ways off um, as far as the official release date, but that's also the beauty of the Indiegogo campaign. If you uh, log on to that site, look for Motorcycle Messengers, you can pre-order a copy and have the book uh, months in advance. So is that what you're doing with it? You're selling uh, pre-orders? Can people just donate money or, or how does the whole thing work? Yeah, so if you like again, if you log on to the Indiegogo campaign, you'll see a few perks that you can choose. Um, mostly I'm pre-selling copies so that people will have them uh, shipped months ahead of the official release date. But also there's spots for you to uh, list your name as an individual uh, sponsor in the back of the book. And uh, there's also some corporate sponsorship opportunities. So if you have a motorcycle-based business, you can contribute to the uh, campaign and then list your business in the back. But I'm limiting that to a very few number of spots because um, really, you know, we're trying not to get caught up with advertising. We're just hoping to raise enough money to do the first print run of this uh, of this book. And Jeremy, how long do we have to uh, access this campaign? There's got to be a cutoff date. Yeah, the cutoff date is June 29th uh, at about noon, I believe. And when the book comes out, where do people find it? When the book comes out, it will be distributed fairly widely. So um, I have a contract for distribution with a, a distributor here in Canada, and they'll put it up um, into stores and you know all the online retailers and things like that. But I always encourage people to shop locally. So if you've got a local bookstore, a little independent bookstore, ask for motorcycle messengers there first, and probably they can get it in. But if they can't, then you know go up from there. Um, look online or Chapters or Amazon and these these places. But clearly the, the best deal right now for anyone is to just go and order it, um, you know, with the Indiegogo site. We'll put the link in our show notes, of course, as well, and then order the book because then you know you've got the book coming as soon as it comes out, and that also helps you with getting the, the book launched. Yeah, exactly. Um, right now the only place you can get it is through Indiegogo. Um, that will change, of course, in the spring of 2016. And also, uh, I've priced the book fairly low on Indiegogo, so um, I'm, I'm taking care of some of the shipping costs as well. So um, it's a pretty good deal, and it'll make sure that you get a copy, and you'll be the first, uh, one of the first people to have it. And Jeremy, what's your personal website? Because you'll have information on that uh, site as well about all of your books. Yeah, I have uh, a website just called MotorcycleTherapy.com. And uh, the publisher website for this is oscillatorpress.com. That's a bit difficult to spell, but if you can find motorcycletherapy.com, you can probably find Oscillator Press. Well, I think it sounds great. It, you know, the more books, the better. I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of motorcycle books myself, obviously. But thanks very much, Jeremy. And we'll put those links in the show note. And um, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll get this thing funded very quickly and, and get us another motorcycle book. I'm looking forward to the opportunity, and I appreciate the support, uh, not only of Adventure Rider Radio, but um, you personally, and uh, yeah, everyone who supports on Indiegogo. Thanks very much. And I also want to say a big thank you to all the, the contributors and writers who are in this book. I've been speaking with Jeremy Craker from his home in Canmore, Alberta, and you can get that book by following the links in our show notes. 
there's a great series of adventure motorcycle books out now by Haynes that are almost like coffee table books. They're hardcover. Um, they've got a lot of color photographs inside. Four of them were written by Robert Wicks, who is our guest today, and another one written by his friend, Greg Baker. Absolutely fantastic books. We're going to talk about those books. We're going to talk about the making of those books. And Robert himself is quite a character because you'd figure a guy who put out this many books was an author and that's what he does for a living. Well, it's not. It's a sideline for him. Robert is originally from South Africa. He now lives in the UK. He started riding motorcycles at the age of 16. He's a passionate adventurer. He's climbed uh, the highest mountain in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro. He's an experienced paragliding pilot. He's visited more than 50 countries, and many of those on two wheels. He's been in the military. He's worked for a publishing company. He's also worked for the Superbike World Championship in Rome and London uh, as the head of marketing and communications. As well, uh, he worked for Suzuki in the MotoGP, and now he is the chief operating officer at uh, the Powerboat P1 World Championship. And on top of all this, he's got a young family, and he still manages time to write books and go on adventures. I mean, he's really making the most of life, and I love hearing people who have lives that are so busy as Robert's is. He also has hobbies like golf and tennis and macro photography. And I think you're a pilot too, am I right, Robert? Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very enthusiastic paragliding pilot, shall we say, um, and uh, I do love doing things in the air. Um, I've written a, a, a book quite recently Jim on, on Heathrow Airport I, I spend a lot of time there flying in and out for business and, and for pleasure so um, you'll often see me looking up at the sky looking at, looking at aeroplanes and, and uh, identifying aeroplanes as much as I um, look at motorcycles and identify them as well so well you right now are in London and that's where you live you're originally from South Africa um, and you do a lot of things in life. You you have multiple books out and I think most people who are into adventure motorcycling have seen one of your books Absolutely, yeah. You know, the um, the series of books started off really just as as one book, trying to inspire and and get people engaged and enthusiastic about the the idea of adventure motorcycling. And it was really um, a book to try and um, give people some inspiration, some great photography, and and try to give them some insight into how they could plan and and complete really the journey of a lifetime. So many people are filled with trepidation and and concern and worry and. The book was really there to pro- provide some reassurance and, and some inspiration that, you know, um, just about anybody could go off and do this. And the most important thing was to to make that commitment, whether that was for a, a weekend, a week or a year. Robert, how or why are you so passionate about motorcycles and how did you get started in it? Um, I, I, I've always been very competitive. I've, I've worked in a, in a sporting um, environment for, for much of my life. Um, I, I was, I guess... 12 years old 10 or 12 years old and um at the at the time um it was unbeknown to me but um uh one of my great inspirations ted simon um happened to actually ride literally ride past the front door of the house that we lived in in um uh, a town called petersburg um in um in the northern transvaal as it was then called uh, about three hours north of johannesburg and i i wouldn't have known who ted simon was then but um when I was 18 or 19, I think I was given a copy of, of his um, his book, Jupiter's Travels, by my, my older brother. And that really opened my eyes to the world of adventure motorcycling and um, to adventure travel and to the idea of, you know, not, not having to be locked into to one country and being able to explore and, and um, stimulate yourself through travel. And um, 
My mother gave up a, a great deal to help me buy my first motorcycle, a 50cc Yamaha that I used to commute on and, and have some fun on. And um, I then got to ride motorcycles during my military service. And the passion grew and grew from there. I did some enduro riding um, and was able to really combine this ever-growing passion for adventure with my love of motorcycling. And it was, uh, I guess, the end of 1999, and I was somewhat fortuitously offered the opportunity to join um, the Superbike World Championship um, and worked in the, in the commercial and, and marketing side of, of that championship for a number of years in, in both Rome and, and, and in London. And that then led to a, a role with, uh, with Suzuki in, in MotoGP and in the British Superbike Championship. So motorcycles have always been there. They've been, in the, been, been a big part of my life. And um, I now do something similar, um, albeit with powerboats, but uh, the passion for biking and, and for books on biking is, um, is ever-present, ever Jim. It's interesting, Robert, because obviously you live a very busy life. You would expect someone who has all these books out to be a writer, but you're not a writer. Um, well, I studied I studied journalism and economics, and I and I do love writing as as time consuming as it is. Um, and and the passion for writing has led me to a couple of other exciting projects. I have a great love of aviation, and and was able to put a a book together about a year ago on um, on Heathrow Airport, um, which has been. Uh, very, very well received. It's all about the inner workings of Heathrow. For all of my adventure travel and and, and business travel, I, I, I'm in and out of Heathrow on a very regular basis, and it's always struck me, you know, how on earth does a place like this function and operate? So um, I started doing some digging and got the public, the same, in fact, the same publishers excited about the book and got the airport very excited about the book. And before I knew it, I was I was knee deep in, in aviation matters and not not thinking a great deal about knobbly tires or panniers or goggles or anything to do with biking. So um yeah it's 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 a great passion um i, I think there are uh, i'm sure a couple more books in the pipeline um i think there's a, a lot more scope to do more writing on adventure motorcycling there's uh i'm sure more to be done on routes and you know we're seeing this constant evolution in the market and and you know one as i as, as i was saying earlier you know there are so many manufacturers have, have identified the segment of, of adventure motorcycling uh, and adventure touring as, as as an area for growth. The, the, the 1200GS and 1200GS Adventure remain the top-selling bikes in the UK for, I think, the eighth or ninth year in a row now um, in the UK, and, and I don't see that changing in a hurry. Um, and when I, you know, I, I drive around the UK quite a lot to meetings and, and, and appointments, and you look at the bikes that are on the road, and, and uh, you know, so many of them are, are adventure bikes, and that's fantastic to see, and, and um, you know, one has to just take a ferry to France only to see how many people are going to the continent, and hopefully, you know, beyond France and Italy, and, and hopefully to, to, you know, countries further afield and, and making the most of, of what their bikes can offer them. Well, we're looking at quite a few books here. I mean, it's it's um, they're published by Haynes, uh, Adventure Motorcycling, Building the Ultimate uh, Adventure Motorcycle, The World's Great uh, Adventure Motorcycle Routes, and uh, the list goes on. How many books are we looking at? So I've produced four in the series, and a, and a great friend of mine and my, my longtime riding partner, Greg Baker, has um, gone and done one on his own as well, on uh, specifically around adventure motorcycle maintenance, which is a, a really sort of hot topic and you know one that I think for a lot of people who aren't perhaps technically minded um, the book is a is a great one to have um, you know in in your pannier when you're riding and, and just again for a little bit of reassurance to to refer to when, when you go and you know as, as I say the, the the series of books really spawned from the first one um, and off the success of the first one came adventure riding techniques and that was a 
a really fun book to put together myself and, and uh, in fact, Greg as well, and uh, a great friend of our, Simon Pavey, who runs the BMW Off-Road Skills uh, courses here in, in the UK, in fact, over in, in, in Wales, which is some of the best riding anywhere in the world, I have to say. Um, we all got together and, and jumped on an aeroplane and, and flew over to Iceland and um, spent about two weeks there um, creating this book. And we had great fun and, and had some tremendous help at local level. Um, it was really a, a, a tremendous book to put together and great, great riding in, in Iceland. It has absolutely everything. And, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about that later on in the, in the show. But um, that gave us a, a platform to, to then go on and um, build a series from there. So the third book in the series was indeed, um, you know, how to how to put together a bike before you go off on your adventure, all of the things that you need to take, all the things you need to make sure you leave behind. Um, and and then from there, the, the, the most sort of logical step in the series was to create a book about, you know, adventure routes. So, you know, we gave people so I think with the you know with the with the five books that um, that have since been produced you know there's a there's a complete set there Jim that you know for any as, a, a aspiring adventure rider you know they just uh, they need to really get um, the, the the complete set I'd say and then uh, they, they're good to go. I really want to start and sort of buzz through all the books just to and give just a, a rough idea of of what's in them. So starting with building the adventure bike, the ultimate adventure bike. How did you get the material for this? Is this just all on your own experience? Um, a lot of it was. Um, you know, w what, I, what I wanted to do was really try and give people a sense of all the different things that, you know, one would have to consider when you were putting your bike together. Because, you know, people might own their own bike. They may hire a bike when they go off on an adventure. You know, there were so many different considerations. So there was a lot of thought went into you know, giving people a sense of the market because there's obviously a fantastic debate, and you know, there's there's so many, so many different opinions about do you go big bike or do you go small bike, and and um, you know, there was a uh, giving people a sense of perspective about the modern adventure motorcycle. Um, I then spent some time looking at you know what are the key considerations when you choose a bike, um, looking very carefully at different equipment and accessories. There was a lot of work and thought that went into into luggage systems, and you know I spent a lot of time talking to key people in the market, trying to get their advice and opinions. And obviously, you know, from my own practical experience, uh, and and talking to a number of other travellers about you know what are the best luggage systems? Do you go hard luggage? Do you go soft luggage? Um, one of the chapters deals specifically around personal equipment and, you know, again, it, it, there's always a, a balance to be found, I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, how much gear do you take and that sort of rule of thumb that so many people at, at um, yeah, Adventure Bike Forums always talk about, you know, lay everything out, you know, then cut it in half and then cut it in half again and then that's probably the right amount of stuff to be taking. So lots of that sort of thing. And then I went into quite a lot of detail with a couple of case studies. The first was um, Walter Kolbach, who will be known to, I'm sure, a number of your listeners and, and has done some great adventure riding and looking at his BMW G650 at his X Challenge um, and some of the, the, the fantastic work that he did um, ahead of um, uh, his, uh, his adventure in Siberia. Um, I then looked at a BMW F650 GS and some of the work that had gone into that and then gave people a sense of, you know, what goes into a, a rally raid bike as well you know obviously the ultimate adventure riding machine um and just to give people a, a flavor of the length that you know go into the preparation and 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 um the maintenance and, and servicing of a, of a bike of that nature it's really from here the maintenance book 
sort of spun out because there wasn't enough um, space really in this book to deal with maintenance sufficiently. So we touched on that. And then um, when Greg went into the book on maintenance, that really got into a lot more detail and, and was very bike specific, shall we say. Yeah, the great thing about all of the books is you've done a lot of photography in here. I mean, there's, there's really good pictures, uh, like when you talk about this book in particular, of all the gear laid out and the and the different motorcycles you looked at and equipment you looked at. I think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that, you know, um, a photograph is worth a thousand words. And um, I think high quality photography is so, so important. And, you know, obviously Haynes put a lot of time and effort into the production and the quality of what they produce. So the photography really stands out. And, yeah, if if anything, the, the the photography is intended to a obviously be instructional, uh, instructional and helpful, but also to be inspirational. And I've had so many comments back from people to say, you know, these are yes, they're very handy, helpful, practical guides, but they're also you know almost a coffee table book in a way, and and have have inspired people to go off uh, riding. It is a, is a great anecdote from the first book, um, the, the the first one in the series entitled the Adventure Motorcycling Manual. And in that, I featured the amazing three years around the world and, and, and his trip has obviously extended since this book was written into seven seven or eight years now. But um, Adam Lewis uh, and Danny Burrows, they went off and, and uh, did a fantastic adventure around the world and Adam has continued riding. Um, but amazing story. Um, Adam was somewhere in South America and um, happened to bump into a, a doctor who'd been practicing in the U.S., and had bought this book, seen the story that was in here from Adam, was so inspired by it and the photographs and the book that he gave up his, his medical practice, bought a motorcycle and, and went adventuring and happened to bump into Adam on the road. No way. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> incredible story. And they just sort of, he said, hang on a second, you're Adam from the book. And he said, well, I don't know who you are. And he said, well, I bought the book that you're in and here's a copy of it. And you know, just just an incredible story. And when when Adam told me that some months later, it was, um, you know, that 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 said to me, the books have worked. <laughs> uh, and and if I remember correctly, in that book, you you didn't really say. I mean, you weren't picking one motorcycle or one set of gear as the the final and and be all or the best of anything. You sort of laid everything out for uh, sort of get, get guidelines of for people how to figure out what they need. Absolutely, I think it's about trying to put out you know, the arguments that are there and you've got, you know, some fantastic arguments on, on one side of the spectrum to, you know, to obviously ride as small and as light and as compact as possible. And, you know, on the on the flip side, one has got, let, let's go 1200 GS BMW or, you know, big, big KTM. And it's a fantastic debate. And in fact, in, in the book on, on building the ultimate adventure bike, I got um, um, the irrepressible Austin Vince to 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 um, give us a, his take on on the DIY approach to adventure motorcycling, and um, he wrote what what he described as an open letter to those who who read the book uh, who, who were reading the book, and um, he put a, a very convincing argument about you know smaller is better, cheaper, simpler, and it was a, it was great to juxtaposition that against you know all of the, the the big adventure bike riding that one sees now and you know all of the big BMWs and KTMs and you know just about every manufacturer now is 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 on that bandwagon if you like and you know you only have to look at the the latest issue of, of motorcycle news here in the UK you know to see that there's such a wide range of, of, of bikes that are available you know um, ranging from Honda's you know the CRF the 250L 
all the way through to Triumphs and, you know, obviously a big range of KTMs now and even Yamaha and, you know, more to follow. So, you know, it, it's really important people understand those those, those choices. Um, and obviously the audience for this is getting wider and wider. There are a number of younger riders that are going out these days. There's obviously a much older set as well, people who've made some money, retired, and are now doing the trip of a lifetime. And fantastic to see, obviously, so many more female riders that are out there, you know, and doing so much. So, again, choices and careful considerations when it comes to gear and, and, and bikes and just really, you know, providing people with that that insight and, 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 and that knowledge. And it is important that everyone realize that anything is good. Everyone has different tastes and different ideas of what will work for them. And that's what makes this so great. You know, you don't have to go and get that specific bike with the knobby tires and, and the hard panniers. We've had people on here, you know, riding the C90s and, and all types of bikes everywhere. And there's so many variables that you can take anything. And I think it's really important that people realize that and it's something we always try to get through with this show. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, that's, that's exactly the, the same philosophy applies almost exactly the same, in the same way to, to the choice of route. You know, you can go and spend a year or two years or more away and, and do an incredible around the world journey. And, that, and that's a great adventure, obviously, in its own right. But the reality is, uh, and, and I tried to reflect this in the, specifically in the book about the routes, was that it's equally exciting and challenging to, to go off for just the weekend and or, or a week or 10 days. And, you know, I, I use my very own example, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm very honest and open about this. I haven't had the opportunity from a purely from a, a time perspective um, to go around the world. I would love to have gone around the world and I'm sure the books would probably probably be better for it. But the reality is, you know, I, I'm fairly career focused. I've got a young family. Um, I've got a number of other interests and I've got to try and balance all of that. So my adventures tend to be when I've got the time available um, and in destinations that tend to be a little bit more accessible. So um, it's, a, it's a little frustrating in, in, in some ways. Um, we, that's not to say we haven't had some incredible adventures, but the, the reality is, you know, one's got to try and tailor what you do to, to the time, to the budget and to the other constraints that one has in, in your life. Um, and there's, there's a really interesting sort of trend of sort of micro-adventures and people engaging in micro-adventures. And, you know, if that, that could just be two week, two days away um, over a weekend and you could have an incredible time. And the most important thing is to get out there, irrespective of, of length of time. Just go out and have some fun. Most people on, that come on this show agree with that statement, that um, it, it is. It's just a matter of getting out there and doing it. Adventure doesn't have to be a certain length of time or a certain distance. It can be very close to home. Let's talk about that book for a minute, The World's Great Adventure Motorcycle Routes. So you didn't do the round-the-world trip, but you have done lots of riding. You, you've obviously ridden for a long time, and you've ridden a, a lot in, uh, in South Africa and, um, and in Iceland and other places. How did you pull a book together about the best motorcycle routes? Well, I, I was, um, in fact, sitting in the, in, the, in the very study that I'm talking to you from, from this evening, um, Jim, and, and I had maps of you know, the entire world um, plastered all over my room. And in fact, there's a, there's a picture of that in in the, in the forward for the book um, showing all of the different routes that I, I thought were worth identifying. And it obviously made sense to provide readers with a, a sense of the, the, the big sort of epic transcontinental routes. Those are the ones that people seem to want to read about. So I looked very carefully at the Trans-Americas, the Trans-Africa and, and the London to Beijing. They were very interesting routes, um, you know, ones that, um, you know, obviously require fairly significant amount of resources and time and all of those sorts of things. But um, by the same token, there 
you know, as we were saying just just moments ago, there there are adventures on your doorstep as well. And with the book being sold internationally, I wanted to make sure that we covered as much of the world as possible. So I then looked obviously at, at roots in Africa and a lot of my own experience in both North and South Africa. Um, worked um, very carefully with a couple of contributors to to look at Asia um, and how one might um, might cover certain routes in Asia and then broke it down continent by continent. And what I did was I was able to get some contributions from some of the, you know, the world's foremost adventure riders. For the epic trans um, transcontinental routes, people like Kevin and, and Julia Sanders um, were tremendous, uh, obviously a wealth of photography and, and an even bigger wealth of experience with all of the routes that they've traveled and the groups that they've taken with them. So they were, they were incredibly helpful um, when it came to some of the, big, the bigger stuff. Um, Alan Whelan provided a lot of information on, on his trans-African journeys. Um, when it got further afield, you know, working with people like Joe Pickler, the, the KTM brand ambassador, some of his riding that he's done in places like Tibet, um, someone who will be well known to your listeners, um, Sam Manicom, some of his great insights on uh, riding India's Golden Triangle, um, you know, a, a broad range of people and, and trying to, to give a real flavor of, you know, what was um, what was possible. Um, we did uh, quite a lot of work on the on the Trans-Amazon routes, again, that Joe Pickler had done. Um, people like Ramona Schwartz um, from um, from Touratech um, and Herbert's trip from uh, Canada to Mexico. So, again, trying to bring in a, a great wealth of photography and a, and a, and a good mix of routes. Your book, uh, Adventure Riding Techniques, is, is spectacular, and you'd mentioned that earlier about going flying to Iceland, and I know that when I first saw that, and I'm flipping through, I'm thinking, how does one get a job like this? Because <laughs> <they manage> <laughs> it, it was very apparent that you guys went to do just the photography, I assume, for that book. Can you tell us about that? Well, in fact, I was um, I was on a on a flight to um, to the US some years ago, and and um, we were flying on Iceland Air, my wife and I, and um, we had to stop over in Iceland for three days on on route to Boston, I believe. We uh, we hired a, a small Suzuki Vitara four x four and managed to explore quite a lot of the island, and um, it, it was immediately apparent to me on that trip. And I, I remember saying it to my wife Tanya. I said, "I've got to come back and ride here." There was just so much to go and see and explore and, and just very, very terrain, moon landscapes and volcanoes and geysers and just absolutely everything. And, and obviously, very, you know, pictorially very exciting. So um, about two years later, three years later, once the books were, were up and running and, and the uh, Adventure Riding Techniques book had been commissioned, there was no doubt in my mind that Iceland probably was the best place to go and do this. A, it was reasonably close to home, sort of a four-hour flight from the UK, but you know, as I said, for all the other reasons, the, the terrain and the the, um, the landscape and everything that was available there just made made a lot of sense. So um, it was um, with with great excitement that myself and um, my riding partner Greg Baker headed off, and we took with us um, someone who I think you've interviewed on the show before, Simon Pavey. Um, I think nine times Simon's ridden the Dow. He's a, a good personal friend of mine, and um, you know Simon was very excited about this opportunity. It was somewhere he'd not been before, which was quite unusual. And um, with the help of a, of a local um, adventure tour company, um, the, the Biking Vikings, as they were called, um, we, uh, we headed off and, and um, uh, we took a, uh, obviously did a lot of our own photography, but also had a professional photographer with us, um, Torvalda Orn Christmansen was his name, if I remember correctly. And Thought, as we called him, was just absolutely tremendous. And there was a local guide who came riding with us and we'd say to him, you know, we need a we need a downhill, you know, off camber corner, 
you know, with two sheep in the background and blue skies. And, and you know, this guy would just know exactly the location. And, and before we knew it, we'd be charging off into the distance and um, lots of microclimates and trying to deal with some quite sporadic weather. And before we knew it, you know, half an hour later, we'd be in a location that was downhill off camber, two sheep and be- beautiful blue sky. And we could get the photography that we needed. So it was a it was a challenging book to put together. There was, you know, we identified all the the different things that we wanted to photograph because, you know, obviously trying to cover something like riding techniques in, in one hit was challenging. Um, we had to deal with, you know, the terrain side of things, all the essential skills that one would need, a lot more of sort of specialist techniques and then some of the things that one needs for, for long distance riding. So literally I was riding around and instead of having a map on my uh, on my tank bag, I had a checklist of the shots and the photography that we wanted to get. But um it was just remarkable, and I could I couldn't recommend Iceland more highly to any of your your listeners. I, if anybody has the chance to go and ride there, um, it, it is truly spectacular. Um, obviously, with it being as far north as it is, um, you've got the light through till you know just about midnight in the summer, and uh, you know a very very welcoming community and and some of the best riding anywhere in the world. Well, the book is also fantastic, uh, the photography and the information in it. When you were going to, to do this book, are you using your own information? Because I know you have Simon Pavey with you, or is Simon Pavey sort of setting it up and saying, this is what you need to teach? We were using Simon as a, as a, as a specialist, as, a, as someone who's obviously had probably had more miles in the, in the saddle than, than any of us. And, um, you know, Simon was, was sort of instrumental in saying, you know, for this particular technique, let's let's shoot it in this way. And as you may see in the book, or as some of some of the readers will have seen, you know, we we overlaid graphics and and arrows and different things to try and you know explain. Obviously, it, this is a, a, a two dimensional media. It's very difficult to to you know. It's probably better to show it in a video, I guess. But trying to give a sense of movement and explain to people exactly how to understand what what we were explaining um you know simon was very good at that and obviously he comes at it from a very unique perspective because he runs the off-road training school so he's seen such a broad variety of of um of people coming to ride bikes um at his school so you know he could he could really approach it from a very good perspective and and provide really useful insight that i think has made the book a you know a, a very good seller the way it's written, it is very easy to read, and with the photographs that accompany it, it really it makes a lot of sense. So you can read through some of the stuff that you you may see on a video, and it sort of escapes you, you know, because you're watching the whole video and there's a lot going on. When you read sure. it in the book, it, it's um, very succinct. It, it's um, it's quite a good book, and I would recommend that to anyone as well. The adventure riding techniques, and of course, you know, it's going to be good when you've got somebody like Simon Pavey behind you, um, uh, you know, using his his uh, experience for teaching, not just riding, but actually teaching. Absolutely. Some, some of the things that man can do on a bike defy belief. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Well, how about the book um, Adventure Motorcycle Maintenance? Well, this was, this was a book that was put together, by, as I say, by, by, um, by Greg Baker, my, my riding partner and, and great friend. And um, Greg is a, has a great technical mind. You can throw pretty much anything at him, as, as we did on the, the opening night of one of our rides in Morocco. And um, he, he had a, a fairly major electrical problem on his, on his KTM and, and you know, worked through the night to resolve it and, and we were able to get away on time. And he's extremely clever when it comes to, to the technical side of, of biking, whether that's um, for a track day bike or um, a commuter bike or for an adventure bike. And um, it, it made a lot of sense for, for Greg to take this particular book on. And I think 
you know, for so many people, um, outside of the concerns of, of, of budget or visas or passport issues or health issues, probably the biggest stumbling block and one that holds so many people back when it comes to adventure riding is, well, what do I do if it goes wrong? Uh, or how do I analyze the problem? Or am I going to be able to get a spare parts? Or, you know, how am I going to deal with this? So we, we really recognize the fact that this was a, a, a useful niche and, and something that could be, you know, suitably um, addressed through a book. So um, Greg said about this, and he, he, he really looked at all of the key um, issues that one would have from a maintenance perspective, particularly while you were out on the road, any, any pre-prep that one should be doing as well, um, real-life emergencies and, and how to deal with them. Um, and then looked at a number of, um, I don't remember how many it was, but it was at least six or eight, maybe maybe more, of the sort of leading bikes on the market at the time um, and sort of common things that you might have to deal with or issues that, you know, known issues with, with particular bikes. So um, probably one of those those products that you would find some space in your pannier for or at least, um, you know, probably photo, photocopy the pages and um, for your motorcycle and, and take them with you. Yes, and when you talk about evolution, it, it makes one wonder where the market will go because obviously adventure bikes have become very popular and, and probably the, the fastest growing segment, at least it is here in North America, for motorcycles. And we've seen it go up. We've seen the bikes get bigger and bigger, and I, I assume it's it's all the manufacturers trying to compete with the R1200, which is so popular as the sort of de facto adventure bike. Um, but now it seems there's there's a trend, and and of course Austin Vince would be happy to hear this, <laughs> hear me say this. There's a trend towards the smaller bikes. People are leaning towards smaller bikes. We're we're getting more people on this show who are saying, you know what? I rented this cheap, you know, small bike, and it was a 125 cc, and I had the time of my life with it. Do you see the trend of adventure motorcycling heading back down towards the tiny bikes? Um, I don't think it's going to head back that way, but I think that side of the market will continue to grow. I, I think the adventure segment as a whole will continue to expand. Um, you know, there, there, there's certainly going to be continued growth, I, I, I have no doubt. Um, uh, the, the manner in which the bigger bikes have captured the market is going to, I think, stay um, I think that stranglehold will be there for some time, but I think you know we, we're seeing, you know, other other bikes. You look at Yamaha's XT, the 660Z, the Tenere. Um, you know, obviously Triumph have done the there's the 800 KTM have got the 690 Enduro R. You know, we're seeing smaller bikes, and then you you go to something like a CCM. You know, they've got the GP450. There's the Honda CRF250. I think manufacturers are going, you know what, there's a market to be had here if we can produce the right bike. And I'm sure it won't be long before, you know, we, we see a couple of other entrants into that market. And it, it's great because it, it just widens the choice for us as consumers uh, and it gets more motorcycles on the road from a, from an adventure perspective. One of the great examples in terms of, of perhaps where the market's likely to go for the, for the more serious adventurer is, um, you know, looking at somebody like Walter Kolbach and, and what he did. Um, he did a, a his Siberski Extreme project, which was about thirty one thousand miles across Central Asia and, and the Road of Bones and the Bam Road, into the the, the ultimate depths of Siberia. And um, you know he took a, a stock standard BMW G six fifty, the X Challenge, as, as it's called over here. I'm not sure if it's got the same name in the US, but um, he did an, a huge amount of work to to try and customize and and, and get that to you know a product that he felt was right for the adventure he was doing. And I think we're probably going to see more and more of that, you know, obviously a smaller, lighter bike, 
but then beautifully customized um, some additional fuel tanks, you know, um, very carefully crafted um, supports for, for, for his panniers. Um, he did a lot of work on, a, on, a, on a, a fairing that he specifically wanted, lights that he knew would work for the route. He did a, a, obviously a custom seat. Obviously, this is going to, to some extremes in, in some respects, but, you know, the adventure was a great success and it, it turned out very well and, and he's been you know highly applauded for what he achieved and a lot of that was down to to the the pre-prep and the work that went into the bike to start with robert you'd mentioned that your experience in riding in south africa or africa in general can you tell us about that well you know obviously africa is 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 one of the great adventure paradises i guess and um you know we're, we're better to start than than south africa you have absolutely everything. It's it's obviously my home country, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be positive about it. And it's it's got, you know, some of the most amazing riding in the mountains to some of the greatest coastal routes you'll ever ride. Um, you know, there's there's snow, there's desert, and you know everything in between. And um, you know, there's there's a a huge frustration in the UK about how limited we are in terms of places to be able to go and ride and some of the restrictions that are put on people in terms of where we can go and ride. And it's a small island um, with a lot of people. And, you know, you have completely the opposite situation in South Africa. You just have miles and miles of incredible riding. And, and I'm not surprised that, you know, the manufacturers, particularly KTM and BMW, uh, um, uh, just have an absolute field day. They, their sales are through the roof and the, and the adventure riding segment in South Africa is, is really significant. Um, so I, I can't recommend South Africa highly enough. And obviously from there, it, it, there's a real springboard. So if you happen to live in Europe or even in the States, it's it's a relatively simple exercise to get your motorcycle to either Cape Town or, or Johannesburg. Obviously enjoy all that South Africa has to offer, which includes if you're coming from Europe or, or the US, a very favorable exchange rate at the moment. Um, and um, you know some of the greatest hospitality in the world, um, but from there you, you you can really use it as a launch pad to get into so many other parts of Africa. You know, obviously South Africa borders directly onto the likes of Namibia, um, with the biggest sand dunes in the world. You can get into Botswana with some of the best game viewing. There's Zimbabwe, which is just an, an untouched wilderness. There's Mozambique, which is going through a sort of a massive regeneration. Um, uh, project in in many areas and is is a real sort of haven for uh, people traveling from South Africa. Further afield, obviously, the likes of Zambia and Malawi, um, and then on to, you know, obviously Tanzania and and, and Kenya, and then you're not far from North Africa, and obviously the terrain changes quite significantly as you get towards the Sahara. Um, If if one doesn't want to consider the, the full length of the African journey, then um, you know, and, and there's obviously certain certain countries which are, are, are something of a no-go with a lot of turmoil. But the re- the reality is, um, you know, if you live in Europe or, or if your your bike happens to be in Europe, uh, it's a very simple ferry ride from the south of France to to, to North Africa, and, and and you're into into Morocco, Tunisia, um, you know, Algeria. There, there are so many places to go riding. Um, and uh, you know, for me, it was actually a, a remarkable sort of feeling having lived in England for ne- then quite a long time riding through France and Spain, taking the ferry across to um, to Morocco and then feeling, you know, I'm actually on a completely different continent. And, and if you've never experienced that, it's an incredible feeling. And to think, well, you know, if I keep riding, I'm, I might just get home. Um, and, and the ride down Africa can be done in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, one can ride down the West Coast. It's 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 longer. It's probably more challenging from a, a visa perspective. There are a lot more countries to consider. Or one can take the more traditional route. 
down the east coast there are challenges um there there are carne issues to deal with in, in places like egypt and one's got to be quite careful obviously from a, from a security perspective given what we've seen with the arab spring but uh africa is adventure paradise um there's a there's a lot that can come your way but uh, you'll, you'll always get a friendly welcome and um it, it truly is a, a, a very special continent for those who don't know Africa, what level of experience or what level of a rider would it take to tackle Africa? Would you say it's a beginner's paradise? Um, you could certainly go there as a beginner, but you'd have to be you'd have to be very conscious of of um, uh, a number of things. One is is probably the quality of the roads. You could probably ride north to south and do seventy percent of it on on, on asphalt on, on on tar. Um, but you know, you've got to be, you've got to be very careful when it comes to, to timing. You've got to be very conscious of, uh, of the rainy season, obviously. Um, you know, and when, um, when that might, uh, when that might hit, you've got to be very, you know, very conscious of that. There, there are a number of things, obviously quality of roads, animals on the road, you know, it's like, you know, much of Africa, you know, remains in a third world state, but, uh, you know, it's not to say that it, it couldn't be tackled as long as you do it sensibly and, you know, there's no point in trying to, to tackle it in six weeks. There's quite a lot of planning that would have to go into it. And, um, you know, if you are planning to cross parts of the Sahara, yeah, you know, you, you don't, you probably don't want to be on a 1200 GS with lots of panniers and, and heavy luggage. You want to be as light and as comfortable as possible. So, um, in fact, in the book on uh, on the adventure motorcycling route, um, my friend Alan Whelan's put a, a great story together of his, his trans-African journey. And um, some of his tips were expect your plans to change on the road um you know the reality of your expectations your route the terrain and a thousand other considerations will mean you you will have to alter your plans it's called adventure um one of his other you know really really relevant tips was africa moves at its own pace and cannot be rushed uh, and that's something really important to bear in mind you know we, we live in such a a time and cost-driven society and, and the reality is if you can step out of that and, and go there with no real expectations and, and just enjoy your adventure at the pace that Africa allows it to be delivered you'll have an amazing time but if you go in there expecting things to move along and you know for your passport to be stamped in in, in 10 minutes it's it's not going to happen um uh, you, you have to accept that and, and acknowledge that. Very important. There's also in, in the book, I, I happen to put together a, a routing from Cape Town to Cairo, and it's about 10,000, uh, 10,500 miles, 10,700 miles, something like that, just to, to give you a sense of, of perspective. And that runs from South Africa through Zimbabwe onto Mozambique and Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, and, and Egypt. Gives you a sense of it. I remember speaking with uh, a guy who had moved from South Africa, and he said that that was the, the one thing that, that is different from there to here in North America. He said, you know patience when you are from South Africa. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And, and um, you know, the, the reality, though, is, you know, there's, there's, um, there's that side of it. But um, riding um, an, an adventure bike and, and being able to stop alongside of the road um, – you know, Africans are, are incredibly friendly people and um, they love seeing um, people on a bike. It, it, it's a great attraction. It's like, it's, you know, it's pretty much like anywhere in the world from a from an accessibility point of view. It's, you know, it's so much easier to stop on a bike and, and not um, 
not have to wind down your window in a in a fancy Land Rover or something. You know, when you're doing your adventure, the the bike is that much more accessible, and people really relate to it. And I think you know, from a from an African perspective, you know, people enjoy it. They love seeing you know people out having an adventure, and um, you know the 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 bush mechanics as we call them are are a dime a dozen. There's there's pretty much no n- nothing that can't be fixed um, on on the side of a road. And I've got a number of friends and and, and um, colleagues who've done adventures in Africa and and uh, have come away, you know, with a with a roadside repair from somebody you probably wouldn't look twice at if you were in in Europe. But um, you know these guys keep vehicles on the road every day of their lives. Robert, what is adventure to you, and is adversity and time required for it? Um, adventure is what you make it, and and I think it's it's not you know it's not about setting out to ride from Cape Town to Cairo. It is everything that you will experience along the way. Get getting there at the end is 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 a bonus, uh, I guess, um, and. The, the adventure side of it, yes, it's, you know, getting some great photography and having a, a great story to tell when you come back. But, you know, it's it's about the things that come your way that, that are the unexpected. And, and that's why I love doing it and, uh, you know, why the people I like riding with uh, approach it in a, in, a, in a similar way. I think if you... If you've got £50,000 in the bank and you want to ride from... Uh, I don't know from from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, and you want to knock it on the head in three months. That that's a that's a different mindset, um, and and a lot will come your way. Um, but the idea of being able to do it uh, single handedly or without you know guides and being able to go off and deal with the things that come your way, um, they teach you great life experiences. And um, there are so many things, Jim, that I think I've learned on the road um, that I've been able to come back and apply to my business life and even family life in some ways um, that have really stood me in, in good stead and, and it, those have come from the adventures I've had. Robert, you'd mentioned riding in Oman. Can you tell us about that? Yes, of course, Jim. Um, the um, the idea for riding in Oman really came from a a requirement to, to provide some new content to the second edition of, of what was the first book, the very original adventure motorcycling book that I did. And um, again, my, my, my great friend and colleague, uh, Greg Baker, and I set off and, and um, we were very kindly assisted with the loan of, of two bikes from uh, KTM in, in Dubai. Um, one was a, a KTM 990 Adventure and the other happened to be a, a very exciting and very lively KTM 450 Rally bike that had... Um, just uh, a couple of months before, um, raced uh, in the uh, in the Dakar. So, uh, a beautiful bike to ride, loads and loads of power, and an amazing piece of machinery. So, um, Oman is a is a truly amazing riding paradise. Um, there are so many things to see and do, and we did a, a fantastic route. Um, it was about three thousand kilometers. Um, which took us north from Dubai um, and into a small enclave called the Musandam Peninsula, uh, which is, lies, in fact, separately from a geographic point of view to the to the rest of Oman and is separated by the United Arab Emirates. But we wanted to go up and have a look at some of the terrain there, which was absolutely beautiful. And then um, back through a small part of the UAE and, and a place called Fujairah, and then into the heart of uh, of Oman itself. And it's got some very wealthy neighbors uh, in the likes of uh, obviously Saudi Arabia and, and, and the UAE. Um, but Oman is, is really going places. And it's uh, it, it really offered um, 
absolutely everything that we wanted from an adventure riding perspective. Um, there, there really was a, a, an incredible mix of obviously, you know, riding on the beach to uh, some very, very interesting trails in the mountains, some great deserts when we got further south, great desert riding um, in an area called the Wahiba Sands. Um, and, and just a, a truly fascinating place to, to, to go and ride. Um, it's very famous for, you know, it's a historic forts, lots of cultural landmarks and, and UNESCO World Heritage sites. Um, some great riding in, in, in the wadis and the riverbeds. Um, and, and just a, a, a truly amazing place to go riding and very accessible. You know, it's a, it's a six-hour flight from, from Europe. Um, people, again, not, not many bikes on the road and, and very welcoming uh, very welcoming culture, incredible food, and and um, just no, no fences. Just you know, you want to you see a trail, you can go. Um, there's nothing holding you back. So uh, I can I can highly recommend Oman. Robert, what advice would you give to someone considering uh, an adventure motorcycle trip, regardless of where they're going? Um, what I would say is you you've got to be absolutely uh, careful when you're choosing your bike. I think that's bike choice is, is probably the most fundamental question you know choose something that is appropriate to the adventure that you're going to be be undertaking um, make sure that you prepare your bike in in the best way possible so that you know you can minimize any issues that you might have on the road um, and you know don't don't be shy to go and learn to ride your bike properly it's it's all well and good you know buying a bike and and um, doing a bit of riding between, you know, perhaps where you work and, and, and where you live. But the reality is go, go and do a, go and do a, a, a dry run as, as I'd call it, a shakedown, you know, load your bike up with all the gear that you expect to be taking and, and, and head off and, and, and go and do some, some difficult trails and some, some challenging riding because it's only once you've done that, that you, you know, you have a real feel for the bike and you know what you can expect and, you know, come back and, you know, repack and, and reorder and sort yourself out. And, and uh, I think so much can be achieved and, and, and um, done in the pre-planning stages. It, it makes such a difference for, for once you're out on the road. Um, get all your documentation sorted. Um, don't, uh, don't forget to pack a good camera. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good camera and making sure that you get some really, really good photography. And, um, you know, perhaps more important than any of that is whatever you do, prepared or unprepared, just get out there. When you say prepare the bike, that's the one thing that I think, is, um, well, it leads into a lot. So w without getting into too much detail here, when you're talking prepare the bike, are you talking about, you know, adding the, the bolt-on things that people like, the farkles, etc.? Are you talking about serious modifications? Um, the, for some people, that that's obviously very important. But, you know, it, it's about making sure, you know, some, some people may have bought a, a second-hand bike for an adventure and, you know, making sure it's properly serviced before you set off, you know, making sure that you've got a set of tires that are appropriate to, to the sort of terrain that you're going to be riding. Um, you know, just, just getting basic, you know, preparation on the bike right, getting your seating position correct, you know, do, you know, making sure your, your, your tank bag is in the right position, that it's comfortable. You know, just, you know, you're going to be spending a long time and a lot of hours in the saddle. That sort of goes without saying. And you want to try and make, you know, your time and your experience on the bike as, as comfortable and as, and as livable as possible. And, um, you know, the more that you can get that set up and, and, and sorted and, and out of the way, um, the better. So it's sort of like getting to know your bike, getting intimate with it. 
Very, very much so. Absolutely. And what you know, certainly before a, a, a long distance adventure, one of the recommendations is you know is to go for a shakedown. You know, go for a shakedown weekend. Go and have a ride and take you know all the gear that you need to have with you because then you know what the bike's going to feel like from a weight perspective. Do you need to make some adjustments in terms of the weight? You know, how are you how are you navigating? Have you got have you got a GPS? Have you got a, a sat nav? Have you got a map? And doing it, you know, the more traditional way I'd favor, you know, in terms of a map in your tank bag. Um, what works for you? You know, what do you need to adjust and, and make sure that, um, you know, you're comfortable and, and set to go. Robert, thanks very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story. And we're definitely going to get you back again. <laughs> Great stuff, Jim. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking with Robert Wicks from his home in London, England. And he is the author of four adventure motorcycle books put out by Haynes Publishing. Well, today we're going to talk about crash bars, and I'm talking with alt riders Jeremy LeBreton and Eric Seymour, and they're going to help us try and understand the whole ideas behind crash bars, why they're made the way they are, and, and a few other things you might not have thought of. So if you're looking to buy crash bars, this is certainly the thing you want to listen to. Or if you may be running a set of crash bars that you're you're not sure of, you know, how good they are, because this is one of those things that um, we get onto our bike and we, we assume that it's going to do what it's supposed to do, but will it really? Um, Jeremy, Eric, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much, Jim. Yeah, thank you. So when we talk about crash bar manufacturing, what are we looking at here as far as the idea of the crash bar? I mean, what is it? Is it to protect the bike? Is it to protect our legs? Is it supposed to do both? Uh, Good question. So uh, crash bars, we can find them if we go all the way back to the early Harleys and Triumphs, right? It's two wheels. Inevitably, that bike one day will not be on two wheels. And so crash bars started just as a, a method to protect the bike predominantly. And we'll discuss here momentarily a little bit about some of the protection you get as a rider. But um, we've seen them always from the, the beginning uh, to protect the motorcycle. So and what about leg protection? Now, I've seen postings on the Internet where people are actually concerned about getting crash bars for leg protection. Should anyone be considering it for that? Absolutely. So, if, of course, if we think about it, but... But first, I want to say one caveat is there's so many different variables when we talk about a crash. So in some instances, yes, it could protect the leg. You can also find an instance where it actually harmed the leg if the leg was pinned between the road and the crash bar. So none of this is a for sure. And always keep in mind, there are so many variables when we talk about a crash. It's, it's a very uh, real challenge we have when evaluating designs. Well, first, Jeremy, let's let's talk about the design of the crash bar. When you're looking at a bike and you're going to make a new crash bar, what are the parameters? What are, what are you looking for with that? One of the first challenges, and it's funny, we were just on a very long call this morning um, with BMW regarding the XR, um, the new model coming out, actually. They've just shipped their um, arriving, as we speak this week, two dealers, the first 148 units into America. And with that XR... The North American vision of BMW is very excited to actually equip these bikes versus the Germans. And so we're involved in this project. And the challenge there, though, this is on a sport bike platform. And I bring all this up is it's an aluminum chassis. So the first thing that uh, the first challenge or the first thing in consideration for the crash bar design is where can I distribute tremendous amounts of load? So people think, oh, well, my bike only weighs 400 pounds or 500 pounds. But if you take the simple calculation for inertia, which is mass times uh, velocity, 
it doesn't take much, meaning 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, to start creating tremendous amounts of force. When you evaluate a crash bar after a, after a huge um, hit, and I say huge at being 30 miles an hour, if that came to a quick stop by hitting a curb or something, and it's bent that bar or even sheared that bar, for you to try to recreate, or some of the guys listening may have in their garage, tried to pound that bar back, initially starting with a small hammer and ending with their full-size sledge, and they're just shocked that they cannot even pound it more than one inch or two inches. And that's back to that calculation of you've got to start taking a 400-pound sledge, speed that thing up to 30 miles an hour, and hit that bar to recreate that same amount of energy. When you were talking about the um, the weight and the speed making a massive impact, you're talking about um, bolting points, right? So in other words, you bolted to a, a bar to something on your bike that cannot withstand that. You're looking at maybe a bent frame or worse. Uh, good point. Uh, and that's when you have to look at the design and say hey are we now mounting to not enough points to distribute this amount of inertia and it's a calculated we don't want to go above and beyond 30 miles at 30 mile an hour impact dead dead to zero because it's also about how quickly does that velocity go from 30 to zero because you know you can have a, a low side at 70 and we've got guys who send imaging at 90 plus miles an hour Hey, if that bike's allowed to slide down the freeway for a 200-yard period, well, of course, that crash bar is actually quite fine. Whereas if we have a scenario where I crash at just 10 miles an hour off-road, but it, where it landed in the mud, it grabbed that bar or hit a rock and went from 10 miles an hour to zero in a distance of not even half of an inch, that's a worst-case scenario than 50 miles an hour. So as I said in the beginning, there's so many variables um, to consider. And... Uh, Going back to now, what you're talking about is where to bolt this to the bike. To take that energy, we don't want to make a system that is unbreakable because something will fail, just as you said. We will damage or bend the frame, and there has to be a compromise in the design. What we tended to find before we started Alt-Rider is often, due to the design of the crash bar to the motorcycle, the fail point became where it mounted to the bike. And this is because most of the designs do not integrate into the frame and and what i mean is that that's by sliding into the the frame member with a machined standoff or uh, which allows me to distribute that load in a larger radius inside of the frame as opposed to relying upon just the shaft of the bolt it's a much easier process if you imagine that crash bar tube terminating at a flange that it's welded to typically up until Recently, all designs then from the flange had a bolt with a handful of spacers that then were fed on and, and bolted to the bike. The problem there is we've now got all the shear load on the shaft of that bolt. So imagine an M8 bolt. It's a typical bolt size we would see. Now you're, you're putting all that shear load of that one-inch crash bar into a bolt that's about the diameter of a pencil. And as we talk about a circle or tube structure, it's exponential in its strength as the circumference grows. So a, in a good example, we've done one-inch crash bars and we have inch and a quarter. It's only 10% heavier to increase the diameter, but it's 80% stronger. So if I think about that pencil bolt that is now going to supposed to take the impact of that motorcycle, that's where you see that bolt folding or bending and we get damage to the frame. And that's where we spend a lot of time 
integrating our crash bar designs inside of the frame member. And so now that we go from an eight millimeter pencil diameter to the machine standoff that starts to come to 20 millimeters, 30 millimeters, more than double or triple the size, and we, we get an exponential calculation in the strength. So it's not double the size, it's more three to four times stronger uh, because again, we are dealing with such tremendous amounts of load. When you're making the bars, what materials do you use for them? Um, uh, all of our bars are 304 alloy stainless. And that's a good point because everybody hears the word stainless and says, oh, well, it won't corrode, it's stainless. Everything in the world corrodes. Everything will oxidize. Our human body will oxidize. Stainless will oxidize. And there's different alloys where they have different ingredients and grades of nickel that are added to make it more resistant. And 304, as a general rule of thumb, is a marine grade, extremely anti-corrosive. There's no such thing as something that will never corrode over time. But I want to jump one step back to the value proposition. I think that's a big one, Jim, and something that we focus on quite a bit. The that's a good point. One is, hey, will my bike survive that first crash? In the end, we do a lot of adventure riding, and the reality is I am going to crash, so it, I don't want it to be the end of my ride. I want to be able to have that crash, pick the bike up, and continue on. That's huge when you have to evaluate the design so that it can actually sustain and do that. So not only from a value perspective, I am actually able to use them. You and I had spoken prior about a helmet scenario where the helmet, in as a general rule of thumb, due to the the uh, the foam core, once it's crashed upon, it's no longer it's deemed safe. You've used up that crumple zone. Essentially, is what has happened in the in the helmet, and that's absolutely not the case with a crash bar. And that's also why we're seeing a tremendous amount of success from rental and tour operators. These guys' business is reliant upon keeping those motorcycles out on the road. Eventually, some of them are going to crash. And they can't have them being out of service just from a crash. So how many times can the bars be used uh, before you know they're garbage? Exactly 4.75 times. <laughs> so, and I know we're, we've gotten quite a bit technical, and I hope some of the, the, the listeners are able to follow, especially the, talking about the circumferences. Um, some of this is hard to not do visually, but I'm going to go back to that same statement, Jim, is it's so hard to talk about. Um, a crash, because what is a crash? If you give me the definition, I can then run a simple calculation and tell you at what point in time that you will exceed the uh, the, the load of that tube. And so it's a very difficult uh, answer to say, hey, how many times will it crash? Essentially, after a large crash, you can evaluate your crash bars to look for the hairline fractures at any of the, the, the areas that have taken the tremendous amount of load. With our design, you, you won't see the failure in the bolt uh, because of the way we've designed it. And some of the other brands, that, that's often the case where you'll see the bending is not occurring in the crash bar. It's occurring at the bolt location. You could start to see it pulling away, which oftentimes leads to a lot of that frame damage we were talking about. So while the bar failed, but the problem is it bent into the frame and caused damage either at that frame or it then caused damage as the bar was allowed to fold into the fairing or the engine. And a great example, and the guys on the forums know this, is the Tiger F800. On the right-hand side, that upper bolt location is a very challenging engineering perspective. And as a result, a lot of brands have a large flange that comes off of there. That larger flange allows for more leverage, right? Jim, you and I know the longer a, a bar is, the easier it is to bend. A short bar is very difficult to bend. So that large flange tends to, and you see lots of images on the forums of these other designs, on a, on a simple crash, the crash bar folding in, but the flange 
touches either the valve cover or even worse is the cylinder and it quick it very simply puts a crack in that um, cast uh, member of the engine it's really interesting that the bar it obviously has to be a certain strength but um, being that most of the failures are at the mounting points I mean it, it's almost like the area that nobody looks at you're absolutely right Jim that's my big challenge from a marketing perspective you know as as we're speaking I'm trying to keep this easy to comprehend but from a marketing perspective, absolutely, it's difficult to uh, to convey the, the the important elements about the design, and hopefully, and over time, people are starting to learn that we, we you don't find marketing spin. Whereas a lot of these brands, there is quite a bit of spin, um, especially a lot of the European brands coming over where they don't have off-road uh, environments. It's completely illegal to ride uh, for the most of the EU, and it's continuing to get worse. But it is very, I mean, I just got back on Sunday from being over there, and it is such a crackdown there. So these these designs really haven't had five, ten years of experience of being ridden off-road. So there's no... Uh, market feedback saying, hey, these do fail, these do fail. And I think that's changing. You know, we're helping to educate, and I think uh, the forums are a great source to get that information across. But you're right. A, a steel tube is a steel tube. We chose stainless steel so that ultimately, not for a strength proposition, but because I know I'm going to crash and I don't want to pick that bike up. And then two weeks later, any of the mild steel designs, you're going to have rust lines running all down the side of your beautiful motorcycle. With the stainless, you're not. And uh, so a tube is a tube, and it's hard for people to understand just looking at it. Hey, what's the difference? It's welded in its tube. It's a crash bar. And I, and I hope we've done a pretty good job on trying to convey that in the videos and, and some of the, the, the communications we've done. So if someone walks into a shop right now and they're looking to buy a crash bar, what are some top questions they should be asking? The first question is, how does this mount to my motorcycle? You're looking for locations, you know, the number of locations, right? The, most, the more places I'm touching, the more ability I get to transfer that energy. And that's a big piece in our design because all crash bars have to be a right and a left side. It has to be two pieces in order to get around the motorcycle. And so one of the critical elements in that design is how does the right and left connect to each other? And that's where we came up with this innovation at the very beginning of the company, you know, some five, six years ago, of the this billet aluminum connector, which allows our crash bars to remain in a complete tube, tube strength, right? We talked about how strong the tube is. The moment you crush and make that tube flat, you've now gone to the strength of flat bar, which is exponentially less strong, right? Think about trying to crush that egg in your hand. You can't do it even though it's just an egg and it's getting all of its strength from being round. And so when we connect our right to our left, we maintain that full tube integrity, allowing us to distribute some 50% of that impact load to the other side, which has effectively doubled my connection points. So that's a big one is how and where are my crash bar mounting and at those mounting points is it just a loose set of spacers in my hand and a bolt and now the shear load is immediately transferred to that pencil bolt diameter or no is it integrated into the frame I would say that'd be the first one and then the second is holy cow what's involved in the installation sometimes you need to uh, if you're lucky enough and you get some instructions in English great but look at some of those hardware kits and look at the um, the installation is this something I want to get involved in that's an interesting uh, proposition and then another one very quickly would be the hardware holy cow these are some sizable bolts and you do not want to find button head bolts versus a socket head cap 
And if you can imagine a button head is that um, rounded off eraser, whereas the socket head cap is that fresh, tall eraser. And that's giving you anywhere from 10 to 20% more tool engagement because so often at the rallies, Jim, we find these guys either upon installation or removal has stripped those fasteners. And that's the last thing you want to be finding yourself is grinding or drilling on your, your uh, expensive motorcycle due to cheap or the inappropriate fasteners being used. That's a, an excellent point, you know, and again, something that I think is, is missed all the time. Just oh. a simple fastener that can make such a big difference. And, I, and I'll be honest, Jim, we had to learn that, you know, it, some seven years ago, because the button heads at times can look uh, cooler or less intrusive, um, and we've worked around that on a design perspective, we ran into this issue. Right along with that same statement, Jim, is when is it appropriate to use stainless steel versus mild steel? Um, stainless steel does not have as hard of properties. You cannot get grade 8.8 or even 10.8 in stainless because it's uh, it's very difficult to, and I should say, expensive to do the heat treatment to bring the strength up in stainless. So all it's not always best to use stainless. There's certain applications and times when stainless is a better option for hardware selection. Well, you're mainly talking about corrosion, though, right? When you're saying about with stainless steel, because stainless steel is not all that strong. That's exactly what I'm getting to. And so if you think about having an Allen head uh, on that stainless fastener, meaning I don't have a lot of surface area versus a hex head, meaning an outside or one that you'd use with a, or a wrench or a socket, I want to have a, the hardest uh, material I can. And so based upon the application, uh, at times a zinc plated uh, steel bolt is better application than a stainless. They're going to go in and they're going to ask um, any other questions you have? Uh, the other thing then I would be is really taking a look at that design. Um, it's so misleading, and it, this is another challenge from us from a marketing perspective. A lot of guys say, but but look at the crash bar. It goes all the way from the engine all the way up to the blinker, and I want to protect my blinker. And and I have to say, I'm sorry, but right now you and I, we could lay that bike on its side, and I could stand on that bar and get it to start to bend in towards that blinker. And the reason is I've traveled such a great distance from the engine or the frame mount and, and now I've lost the integrity, the structural integrity of that crash bar, but people buy them because they look like that's the best crash bar. Look at how much crash bar there is. And, the, and so from all of our designs, as a general rule of thumb, you know, we try to maintain anywhere from 12 to 20 inches between strut distance to maintain that structural integrity of that one inch bar. By the time you start traveling anything greater than that, you're really looking at a weaker design. And while it's it's going all the way up and around your blinker or way up over your fairings the day the first day you go to use it that bar is going to crash right or bend into your fairings and mar up that that all that paint and that plastic blinker you were trying to protect yeah that's a very good point that that extra stuff can actually cause damage instead of uh protecting anything so when, when you're designing you mentioned something earlier when you said about the angle of the bike when it falls over when, when you're designing every crash bar do you look at angle of, of fallover Oh, absolutely, absolutely, for many reasons, and I'll try to try to keep this one concise. Um, first one, uh, Jim, is is my contact patch, right? So um, you can ride these bikes very aggressively. So we have to evaluate lean angle, and lean angle sounds simple, but again, we've got a series of variables: full compression of suspension, weight of the rider, weight of the gear, um, the the inflation of the tire. What tire is he? That is all. All those variables dramatically change the lean angle. Because the last thing you want is a contact patch of the of a crash bar while you're riding uh, leaned into a turn. And then along those variables is, is the riding surface. It could be uneven, again, dramatically changing the lean angle. 
So, so the first one is lean angle. Second one is how much of the motorcycle do I want to try to protect? And that goes back to that statement where we run into that challenge that these other designs, they, they win from a marketing perspective or a visual. They're like, oh, it looks great. It looks like the best one. So we, we have to evaluate a compromise of, hey, how much can we protect or keep off the ground? Um, and then the other bigger one is, and this is another hard challenge for us, is surface area. I don't want the crash bar to only contact one small portion of the ground. I want that crash bar as much of it to become planier or uh, have a large contact surface area. So, you know, let's call it five or eight inches of the crash bar, not one inch touching the ground. That's that same principle about distributing the load. And so that's another big element. And we spent a lot of time with these bikes laying on their sides. Absolutely. It's really surprising to find out all the different things that you're taking into account just to design a crash bar because really one would just think that, oh, you just get a, a bit of tubing and you, you weld it up and away you go. You've got your, your protection there. Sadly, Jim, I think uh, uh, in looking at a lot of the designs on the marketplace, I, I think that absolutely is the, is the method and approach. It's, it's get it done as quickly as we can, capture the sales in the beginning. So while Altrider's uh, not always the first to market, for sure, you see quite a difference in the design, and and um, sad to say, I think that does happen quite often. It was one question I had for you was we're talking about spacers. Would you say that spacers are just a no-no? There's something that shouldn't be on crash bars. No, it's not always the case. There's there's many times in cases where there is no option and you have to use spacers. It's it's as a general rule of thumb, you want to look for how is it integrating into the frame. So that's not a solid statement or a solid rule overall, but that that statement about the integration in the frame is what you really want to look for in the overall design. One last piece though would be we didn't talk about how we built that crash bar. And this is a huge, unique differentiator that nobody else on the marketplace has. And we've got it in a few videos, but now that I think about it, we actually should be showing this more often. So we go back to that design. Okay, we, des we spend a, uh, a month or two in CAD and design this, uh, this crash bar, but now we've got to go make it. And the, you, you understand what a cope is. That's when I'm not coming 90 degrees uh, into a union. I'm coming at an angle. And you start to think about how two tubes come together at an angle and there's a lot of geometry going on there. And that's called coping uh, the tube construction. Well, nobody is using a five axis laser cutter. And what that allows us to do is to cut at that, that ultimate precision, but along that ever continually changing angle that goes all the way around the tube. Because we do not smash our tubes and weld a flat seam because we talked about how weakening that does. You see that in a lot of designs because it saves tremendously on the, the manufacturing costs because you don't have to weld all 360 degrees around the tube. You just weld one pass at the flatted spot. So the strength is absolutely critical. The other element, though, is that precision cut allows us to use way less welding. Therefore, we have way less distortion or uh, warpage in the design, making your installation so much easier. So if you think about it, you've got your tube, it has to be cut. Well, ours are all cut with a five axis laser. Then they go to the bender, they're all bent. Now you have all your segments or your struts. Now they need to go into a fixture or a jig. And this is the tool that allows us to maintain the precision as these things are manufactured. So as they get all placed in there, because they were cut with that laser, that five axis laser, the, the gaps between all the unions are dramatically less versus the other methodologies. And this means that the welder does not have to use a tremendous amount of heat and fill. And you'll see this in other designs. As you look at the welds, you'll see the size of them. And, and it's, a lot of it is filled. They're filling a gap. 
The problem with this is they're adding a tremendous amount of heat to the manufacturing process. And that heat, when it cools, causes a dramatic amount of warpage. What that means for you as the end user is you're going to have a hell of a time, as some of you guys have experienced, when you're installing that crash bar, you're out there with a cheater bar, a hammer, a, a die grinder, trying to make this crash bar fit because of the way that it was manufactured. It's lost all of its tolerances, and now it's a, it's a very difficult process. So um, for strength, first and foremost, but secondarily, we end up with a much more precise uh, design so that installation is so much easier is why we use that five-axis coping process using the laser. I was going to ask you about the, the flattened tubing. You mentioned several times about flattening a tube and losing the structural strength from the tube because you've flattened it. Is that a signal for a poor design? Absolutely. Just at the basis of what we're talking about. Otherwise, then why aren't crash bars made in flat bar? Because that, that really would be the answer to that. And that's what you end up with once you take and compromise that tube. Everyone knows they don't want flat bar on their bikes, so all the manufacturers use tube. But they not so many of them have crashed or are built for apps actual usage. And so as a very quick and, and cheap manufacturing methodology, you smash that tube. You don't find bicycles uh, at their unions smashed and then put together and welded. You might find a few Chinese things like look at look at um, hand trucks and and other uh, even cheap trailers and things like you find from Harbor Freight. Um, yes, absolutely, that is a design flaw. Yeah, well, that's a good one to watch for then if you're if you're looking for a set of crash bars. Eric, now you have a special deal from Alt Rider to Adventure Rider Radio listeners for today. What have you got? Yeah, it's, you say it's special, and I, and I guess it is special. It's just not that special. What we wanted to do was a little bit something for uh, your listeners because uh, I personally think uh, this podcast is really cool and uh, unique, and as an adventure writer, somebody enjoys exploring on a motorcycle. It's, it's fun for me to listen. So uh, just to encourage more people to listen or the people to uh, continue listening, we wanted to say, Hey, uh, uh, you know, support Alt Rider. We'll support you back. Uh, place an order with us for $149 or more. We'll pay for your shipping, and that's actually restricted to the U.S. Um, any, any Canadian orders, uh, we have three offices. They all offer different uh, variations of free shipping, so they'll go ahead and they'll go ahead and honor that as well. But I'll also uh, here in the U.S. office and at my three Canadian offices, I'll send a small inventory of my decal sets and my um, my neck warmers, and those will get added into the orders while those supplies last. But the first 20 orders uh, that use the code will get a free T-shirt as well. So that's really good. So they, all they have to spend is 149 US. Uh, they get free shipping. They're going to get the neck warmer, the decal, and uh, the first 20 get a free t-shirt. That's pretty cool. You can't go wrong. And I'm going to give you the code. So if you're listening, you want to get ready, write this down. It's ARR2015. So ARR2015. ARR is obviously for Adventure Rider Radio. Does it have to be all in caps, Eric? Uh, it doesn't really matter. But okay. what's important is just put that in the notes field when you're checking out. We do not have any special uh, code field. That might be a, a bit confusing, but just put it in the notes field. Perfect. That's valid until uh, August, rather, 31st, 2015. Great. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. We've learned a lot about Crash Bars today. Jeremy, Eric, it was a pleasure to have you back. Hey, Jim, yeah. thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. And that, of course, was Jeremy LeBreton and Eric Seymour from Alt-Rider. And you can check out more in our show notes and get that code if you missed it. That'll also be in our show notes. 
This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And MotorTour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.MotorTour.com. MotorTour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.MotorTour.com. And Altrider, manufacturing 100% American-made accessories and gear for your adventure touring motorcycle. You can find out more by visiting Altrider at altrider.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And this one brought to you entirely from the road, same as the last one. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and send us your comments. Click on the donate button and send us a donation to keep some fuel in the tank and some food in our bellies. And now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, everybody. This is Ted Simon. Um, I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm very happy to be here. I'm at Jupitalia.com, and uh, I wrote Jupiter's Travels. the adventure this is alan carl worldrider.com you're listening to adventure rider radio hi this is grant johnson from horizonsunlimited.com and you're on adventure rider radio (laughs) 